Victor Hugo, the author of Les Miserables and a, a tireless fighter against human suffering in his day, said this. He said, tomorrow, if all literature was to be destroyed and it was left to me to retain one work only, I should save Job. Now, why would a giant of a man like Hugo say something like that? Well, it's because he knew three things about life that you ought to know. Number one, he knew and you ought to know that that nothing is more certain in life than pain and suffering. At some point, everyone's life will be touched by suffering either personally in your own heart or life or body or in the life of someone that you love. And second, he knew and you ought to know that suffering makes a kind of theologian of us all. And what I mean is this, when, when suffering strikes your life or it strikes the life of someone that you love, you, you don't turn to science for answers as much as you turn to stories and stories about faith. And you ask in those moments the big questions about life, about meaning, and about God. You don't ask what is happening as much as why it's happening. See, suffering makes, again, for better or for worse, a kind of theologian of us all. And because Victor Hugo knew those first two things, you know, he knew first that nothing is more certain than suffering, and second, he knew that for, those reasons, for that reason, human hearts look for answers. He knew, therefore, the third thing that you ought to know, that there's no book in all the world that deals with the question and the pain of human suffering with as much insight and brilliance and wisdom as the book of Job, which we're beginning to take a look at for the next four weeks, and I hope you'll be along with us for the ride. But I want to today, on this Easter, from the book of Job, try to to lay out for you the Bible's response to pain, to suffering, and to death. You ask, well, man, what, what about those things? Why those things on this day? And here's why. It's because Easter itself is the Bible's response to pain, to suffering, and death. So let's look at the Bible's response to these things through three lenses today. We'll go through and look at, number one, Job's day. Secondly, our day. And thirdly, finally, that day. Let's begin, number one, and look at Job's day, verses eight and nine, which we saw. It says, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him, blameless and upright. He fears God and shuns evil. Verse nine, does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied. So right off the bat, let's ask, why was this book written? Why is this story told? Why is this even in the Bible? Well, it's in the Bible. It was written to shatter forever the shallow answers that human beings and cultures over all times and places have tried to give in response to human suffering. What do I mean? I mean, there are, there are by and large two main veins or arteries or highways, types of shallow answers people give to try to answer the why question of suffering. And let's look at each of these briefly in turn. First, what is the, the religious response to suffering looks like? Because there's a traditional religious response, and here it is. When it comes to suffering, the, the moralistic, the traditional religious response to suffering goes like this. This moralistic religious person always assumes it's a person's own fault for why they suffer. And unfortunately, many Christian churches and other types of faith environments can be full of these kind of people. They say they believe that it, you must have done something wrong to deserve this, or you've done something wrong in a past life perhaps, or perhaps you don't have enough faith right now to overcome, and that's why you're suffering. But let's forget others for a moment. What about, what about you in your own life? How do you respond? How do you process 
your own suffering, do you think, when you suffer, if I just loved God more? If I just had more faith, this wouldn't be happening to me. Or when you see other people who suffer, do you think, man, if they just acted a little better, just loved God a bit more, they wouldn't be going through that. And if that's you, if so, do you realize that's just classic moralism dressed up in religious language? You ask, well, how can you know that? Well, again, you can know that just by looking at Job's day in the story, his day of tragedy. Let's just ask, on Job's day, on the day he lost everything, what had Job done to deserve it? Hmm? Had he done something? Maybe he had. Maybe he hasn't. Maybe so. Let's look. What does the Bible tell us about Job and his faith? Huh? The Bible here, no, check that. God here tells us who Job is right off the bat. Verse 8. Again, there's no one else like him. He's what? Blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. Again, God himself says that. And therefore, what the story is telling you and trying to get across is this, that Job is about to go through unbelievable suffering in his life through no fault of his own. Why does he suffer then? Well, certainly not because of a lack of faith, of morality, or relationship with God. Therefore, you can't say that someone's suffering is always, always their fault. But that's not the only response to suffering that we see falls flat here in Job 1. There's a, there's a secular response our culture tends to give today. And that's also a dead end. And what is it? Well, uh, and by contrast or in contrast to the religious person who says, you know, God's basically got a, a, you know, a tit-for-tat uh, morality system going on. The secular person says this. They say, Look at suffering. Look at it. It's horrible. There, there can't be a loving God. It, God must not exist. Or if he does, he's asleep at the wheel. Suffering is therefore proof that either God doesn't love us or that we ought not to love or trust God. Now, whereas Job's life is a response to the moralist, God's actions here are a response to the secular, cynical person. How so? Look at verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself... Do not lay a finger. Now, at first, you may be horrified by this. If you're a thinking person, you, you may ask, maybe is God just playing games with his life, with my life? You know, I mean, are we in some sort of twisted cosmic roulette here in the universe? No. If that's what you think here, oh, you're missing the point of the narrative. The point of this story is to show you God's relationship to and with suffering, which is this, that God doesn't invent suffering. He doesn't invent evil. He doesn't bring it into people's lives. But Satan here, it's Satan, not God, who introduces evil into the story. And the Bible says that God does not introduce evil into the world. It's us who have done that. People who do that. Nor does God bring evil to Job here. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, great. Well, you know, but God could have stopped it, right? Yeah, God could have stopped it. You're right. This isn't just Satan and God going at it like rock'em, sock'em robots, you know, two equal and opposite Batman and Superman, right? No. There's only one deity in the book of Job. But what Job's day shows us is that God allows suffering, but, but, and yet, He limits it. He limits it. He permits it, but he limits it. He overrules it. What does that teach us? Two things. That first, no matter what you're going through today, it could always have been worse. It could always have been worse. But second, and more importantly, this shows us that God 
only allows suffering into your life and my life to bring about our greatness. You ask, what does that mean? I mean this. I mean, in the end, let's ask by the end of the book, what does Job's suffering do? Oh, we're going to see. It silences Satan's age-old accusation, which is that human beings are only capable of loving God and one another based on what people do for them. They're only capable of using God and using one another. See, Satan's accusation was that Job only really loved God because God had done stuff for him, right? I mean, Satan's the ultimate cynic. You can almost hear him in his sort of best demonic Tina Turner you know, impression. What's love got to do? Got to do with it, God, you know? But the suffering that God allows here, you got to see, it's the rope with which Satan's going to hang himself in the end. God is overruling Satan's plans to, in the end, defeat evil and bring about Job's greatest moment in the long run. He asks, well, how can he know that? Well, well, look at you right here. Look at us right here today. What are we doing? Hmm? Thousands of years after this story, on Easter, here we are talking about Job's experience, pain, and ultimate what? Triumph. Triumph. God, excuse me, Satan wanted God dishonored and Job discredited. But what God allowed only honored Job and discredited Satan. Job's story, can you see, has helped millions of people over thousands of years. You say, well, well, that, that was Job, right? Good for him, you know, good on you, mate. But what about me, right? What about my day? What about what I've gone through, what someone I love is going through? Listen, you're right. I don't know about you. I wouldn't pretend to know what's going on in the depths of the pain of your own life. I don't know what it's been like for you, for your family, for your loved ones, for your nation, for your people, for the people this week in Europe who are blown apart by bombs or by in Iraq who are blown apart by bombs this week. But let's just get down to it, right? And ask, what about you? What about your day? What about not just Job's day, but your day on your day of suffering, in your day of suffering? What's happening underneath it all, maybe even through it all? Let's look at that. And number two our day and just ask what's happening what's happening beneath the surface down deep when we go through it let's see two things here i believe that can help us that this passage teaches us first that god is i believe he's inviting us to think more deeply and he's helping us to love more freely let's look at each of these briefly. First, he's inviting us to think more deeply. What do I mean? I mean that when you suffer, when you go through it, when you see stuff on the news, it forces you to wrestle with, because you have to wrestle with it, what's been called the problem of evil, which can be summed up and put forth like this. First, a truly good God would not want evil to exist. An all-powerful God would not allow evil to to exist, but we see evil exists, second, therefore third, a God who is both good and powerful cannot exist. Again, that argument, it's used unceasingly in college classrooms and internet chat rooms, and again, forgive me, in the new Batman versus Superman, in the mouth of the devil, Lex Luthor, by the way. So the argument, again, it sounds compelling, but the real problem is this. The real problem is this. There's a hidden premise smuggled inside it, which is this. This premise assumes that God does not have any good or higher reason to allow evil to exist, which is an extremely difficult, 
if not impossible thing to prove. In other words, this premise conveniently screens out the idea of an all-wise God. God may be good, may be powerful, but he's not wise, C-O. But listen, a wise doctor sometimes allows pain and suffering into his patient's life for his or her own good, right? A good, wise parent allows pain and suffering into a child's life through some form of discipline, right? To bring about a greater good, which is, of course, hopefully that the child does not live at home playing video games till he's 42, right? Many of us, if not all of us, can look back on a prior moment of difficulty or suffering and say, that actually made me better in the end, see? Why couldn't God like an infinitely better doctor or parent be doing the same thing for and with you. You say, well, that makes some sense, but, but what about, you know, senseless tragedy, massive, inexplicable violence against the innocent? What about that? Well, again, if an all-powerful God exists, then that God would also have to be, by definition, all-knowledgeable. And if God, again, is all-knowledgeable, if he knows all things, why couldn't he have? reasons for allowing something we couldn't think of or consider as finite people if he's existed for an eternity surely he's seen more and knows more about the human heart and human existence than we do you say okay well that makes some sense all right but we're gonna just forget all the logic stuff enough with that because because in the end evil horrors genocide those things are just wrong god can't exist he can't be real because those things are just wrong but hold on a minute how do you know how does anyone know violence suffering cruelty are wrong nature All around us is full of it. It's what makes the world go in many ways. One animal's life is snuffed out through cruelty and violence to another. Why shouldn't it be the same for you? Hmm? What's wrong with it? What right do you have to call anything wrong? And two thinkers gave very different responses to that question first. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from Birmingham jail said that if there were no higher law, no divine law outside of the human mind, there's no way to tell what's right and wrong and we cannot say what's just or unjust with any conviction, authority, or sense. Oh, but secondly, when Frederick Nietzsche, by contrast, he heard that when a natural disaster had wiped out 200,000 people on the island of Java in 1883, he said this, he said, 200,000 people wiped out at a stroke. How magnificent. Hmm. What's he saying? He's saying that if there is no God, he's thinking it through. If there's no God then nothing really matters. Suffering has no meaning. See, Nietzsche the atheist and King the Christian were both right. If there's no God, then suffering's meaningless. And therefore, abandoning belief in God because we see evil, oh, it can't help us deal with the problem of suffering. A writer by the name of Andrea Dilly was raised by Quaker missionaries in Nairobi and, and her exposure... As a young child, a massive suffering, massive pain, massive violence and death caused her to question her belief in God at a young age and later abandon it as a young adult. But, but one night in a philosophical debate, she, she realized one simple thought. She realized if morality is subjective, she realized she couldn't ever condemn an Adolf Hitler. And she went on to say this later. She said, when people ask me, What drove me out of the doors of a church and then what brought me back? My answer to both questions is the same. 
I left the church in part because I was mad at God about human suffering and injustice. And I came back to church because of that same struggle without a God. We're all just animals slumming it in a godless world, fighting for space and resources. The idea of justice doesn't really mean anything. To talk about justice, you have to talk about objective morality. And to talk about objective morality, you have to talk about God. Friend, when you see or experience evil or suffering, God's inviting you to think more deeply. But second, he's actually, number two, helping us, I believe, to love more freely. And I love this. Do you realize, do you realize that for the rest of his life, Job, catch this, he does not ever know why he suffered. Well, he never knows. He doesn't know there's a reason. He asks God why. He pounds the table. He, he shakes his fist at the heaven. He demands God respond. But what's, what's God's response? God does come at the end of the book, but it's not the response Job thought he would get. God doesn't say to Job, hey, Job, man, you know, pal, you're really going through it. It's been a tough year for you. But let me tell you why. In 2016, there's going to be this Easter Sunday thing. And, you know, people are going to gather from all over Austin, Texas to hear about you, buddy. So hang in there and keep a stiff upper lip. No, no, no. What does God say? He comes. There's what he says. Who is this that darkens my counsel? It's a fancy way of saying, Job, I know you've suffered deeply, my friend. I know that you love me deeply, but I'm more powerful than you, more loving than you, and far more wise than you. And what's going on here is, frankly, beyond you. Yeah. Job, he never knows the reason he suffers. But that doesn't mean there's not a reason, does it? No, no, no. There is a reason. Job doesn't know it, but we do. We can see it. Oh, what's the reason? And the reason is this, that Job is answering with his life the dagger of a question that Satan levies against you today in your seat. He asks, can people really, truly, and freely love God for who he is? See, Satan says, sure, Job fears you, God, right? He really loves you, honors you, God, but it's because you do stuff for him, right? You blessed him. He's got money, kids, family, health. We both know, God, that people only love you because you help them. Hmm? What's love got to do got to do with it, God. Now, let's give the devil his due here in a way, because that's the question, right? That is the single greatest question anybody can ever ask about your life in terms of a relationship with God or with others. It's on the table. So let's ask it and turn it on ourselves for a moment. Let me ask you, do you love God for who he is or for what you think he can or ought to do for you? Or do you love other people for who they are or for what you think or expect they ought to be doing for you? Or let's just reverse it for a moment. What's it like for you in your own heart? You feel like people are only loving you or only around you for what you can do for them. Hmm? How about you? Ladies, you've been there. There's a man who calls, right? He starts showing you attention, gets you on the phone. He writes, or actually today he texts, right? Very romantic. He sends you flowers, even why? Is it because he loves you? Or maybe because he just wants something from you? If he wants you to sleep with him, maybe betray your conscience, convictions in a way, and you say, no way, man, and he leaves, what has he shown you? That he wasn't really in it for you. He was in it for what he wanted to get from you. That's not love, is it? Of course not. Do you know how I can know, how I can know my wife, Carrie, loves me? 
it's not just because she's told me. It's because she's shown me. And how has she shown me? It's like this. She's shown me she loves me by loving me when she's gotten nothing for it. When there was nothing at the moment, she was getting out of the relationship. She still loved me. She showed me. She didn't just tell me. In other words, you can really know that she loves someone by how you respond when you don't get what you think you ought to be getting from them. When it looks like someone maybe even has abandoned you. I mean, how you respond in that moment, it makes or breaks your relationship with them. Let me ask you, did it look like God had abandoned Job? It kind of did, right? Did it look like God was mistreating Job from Job's perspective? but not in reality. See, Job thought he had all the facts, didn't he? But he didn't. No, he didn't have all the facts. And as a matter of fact, he never had all the facts. And neither do you, and neither do I. Only God does. And therefore, when we choose to stay in a relationship with God, even when we don't get what we think we ought to be getting, it proves Satan is a liar, and that you and I are not consumers of God or others. Job's life, Job's life is evidence that it's possible to not be a consumer of God because and only because he never got an answer to why he went through what he went through. He never knew why he suffered. Can you see? It was this, it was the not knowing that made him great. He was turned into a free lover of God by not getting what he wanted. And so can you and I. Can you live with a not knowing if that's what it comes down to? Could it be that the not knowing why you suffer or others suffer is doing something greater in you than even a knowing could? It did for Job. It did for Job, didn't it? Instead of pushing Job away from God, Satan, he only drove Job deeper into God's heart. And instead of being crushed by what he went through, Job became a lion heart. And he's helped to change the world. All because he never knew the reason, even though there was one. See, the greatest thing you and I can ever become is a free lover of God and others. So you say, well, that sounds real nice. That sounds great. Free lover. Like that part, yeah. But how, let's ask, how can we do that? How can we today endure our day, our day of suffering or, or of not knowing? How can we become free lovers of God? You gotta look at not just Job's day and certainly not your day, but third, finally, we've gotta look at that day. That day. Satan comes to God and he says this. He said, God, Job doesn't really love you. Does that sound familiar? It should. You know where else Satan levied a similar accusation? It was all the way back in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. First Bible story ever, only instead of coming to God, he, he, he comes to us, right? And he accuses God to us. He says to even Adam, he said, God doesn't really love you. He's holding out on you, right? But Eve said, no, no, God told us not to eat the tree, to obey him because, because he loves us. And Satan said, you've got to be joking. What's love got to do? Got to do with it. God's using you, holding out on you. Oh, see, the lie of Satan is just that. It's that if you give your life completely to God, if you trust him with everything, he'll crush you, right? The lie is that you won't be happy, that your freedom will be taken away, that your life will go worse. The lie is that he doesn't love you and you can't trust him. 
with your future. And that lie, oh, it sank deeply into our parents' hearts. And we got the same thing, the same operating system running today. Or let me just speak for myself. My greatest problem in life is that I don't totally believe God absolutely and unconditionally loves me at every moment and is always working for my good, no matter whether I feel like it or not. Right? That's it. See, people criticize. Things don't go my way. My best friend, a minister, kills himself. I think, God, God, what is this? I question his love. And I believe in it on paper, right? In the Bible, for the Bible tells me so. On paper. But what's concrete is whatever I need to feel love, success, approval, whatever, status, you got it. Therefore, what do I need? What do you need to become truly great and free? It's this, is to know that Satan is a liar and that God loves you truly and deeply and unconditionally. See, all our problems, marriage, life, parenting, job, it comes from not knowing this deeply. Therefore, how can we? Oh, it's not by looking at Job, but at the one Job points to, the one whom all stories in the Bible are really all about. Because centuries after Job's day, on another day, on that day, Satan assaulted another innocent sufferer who also had his robes torn off him and who hung naked before God. But this man didn't just lose his reputation, didn't just lose his money, didn't lose his children even. He lost his life. And on the cross, when that man suffered, when he cried out why, like Job, he got no answer. Oh, but whereas Job was only relatively innocent, Jesus Christ was truly innocent. And whereas Job was only apparently abandoned, Jesus Christ was truly and actually abandoned. Jesus Christ is the only person in history to whom God said, if you love me completely, if you obey me fully, if you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength at every moment of your life, I'll crush you and give you hell for it. See, Jesus answered. He answered Satan's age-old accusation because Jesus served God not just for nothing, for less than nothing, for worse than nothing. Jesus was the only truly innocent person, and he suffered, not just finitely, but infinitely. Oh, why? It's this to show you, to show me, to show us Job's that when we suffer, it can't be. Because God doesn't love us. We know it can't be because he's abandoned us or punishing us. There's no punishment left. It's all been poured out on Jesus on that day. God himself, this is saying the Bible says, came and he suffered. Jesus took his own medicine in a way. Can you see? And it killed him. He's the greater Job whose love and life can silence the enemy's lie so that if and when we suffer, we can be turned to gold no matter what we're going through. The lie is that God doesn't love you, but look at the cross today and then look at the empty tomb. Do you think, do you think when the disciples saw Jesus on that day, their minds were blown, they were confused, bewildered. They thought it was over, but then they saw the tomb. The empty tomb, another day, resurrection day. And they knew, oh, that God had done something beyond what they had, could ever imagine. They saw God couldn't love them any more than he already had. See, God loved us. He loved us when he got nothing for it. Nothing for it. 
when he got death, when he got abandonment. Have you ever thought about that? That God, God, in a sense, he didn't really get anything out of loving you. His career doesn't advance, doesn't get promoted, doesn't become more beautiful. You can't really get him anything he doesn't already have for Christmas, right? He gets nothing for loving you other than, catch this, other than just having you. Other than just having you, which proves his forever love for you isn't based on your performance, isn't based on what you can do for him. It proves he loves you. Hear this, for who you are, so that you can now love him for who he is. Easter is forever proof that God loves you right now and is working for your good. Not just because of Job's day, but because of that day, that day, resurrection day. So let's ask, if you're going through it now, what can you do? What do you do with this? What do you do when you suffer? Okay, Morgan, you say, I'm going through it. What do you do? Look at verse 22, little pointer solutions here. At this, it says, Job got up, he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground in worship. Two more thoughts and we're done. First, let me encourage you today, if you're really going through it, to in a sense tear your robes. That was a, that was a sign of saying, Job saying, I'm becoming naked, vulnerable before you. He's risking even appearing shameful by opening up his life to those around him. Listen, Christianity isn't stoicism. It's not keeping a stiff upper lip. Job said, here I am. Here's me. Here's what's going on. But... He didn't just stay there. No, we see he didn't just vent his pain. We see he also aimed his pain. He secondly, he worshiped even when it hurt him. 